And man, that is quite a hope. That is quite a hope that we have. I mean, when, when you watch it put together in a, in a video like that with the music playing, and, and it says, listen, our hope that is in Christ, that is found in Jesus, is an extraordinary hope. It, it is a hope that meets us uh, in our humanity and, and rescues us and, 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 and saves us from ourselves. It is almost too good to be true when we begin to think about the implications of the hope that we have in Christ. As you first discover the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and, and you realize as you collide with that gospel that God actually did not abandon our human story, did not abandon you and I, but, but he came for us and he rescues our souls. He rescued our souls. That is a big deal. That is a great hope. And, and, and there's something in us that stirs and goes, my, my soul has been rescued. And then as you dig further into the implications of the gospel, the good news, that since our souls have res are rescued, what does that mean? You start realizing, hold on, hold on, when he rescued our soul, in that rescue, he also restored our created purpose, our God-created purpose, to know God intimately and to make him known, to live our lives, uh, to, to glorify him, to, to image him, to display him. I mean, this is an implication of our soul rescue. And then uh, the implications expand further than that. Not only uh, is our purpose restored because our soul is rescued, but our future is also redeemed. That the eternal story of our lives is now redeemed to life and light and freedom instead of death and, and destruction and bondage and brokenness. And, and so you start looking at this and you go, wow. And then when you discover the implications of the gospel of soul rescue as a restored purpose and a redeemed future, you begin, as I do, uh, to, to reorder your life around this reality. Uh, that's our life journey, to begin to say, hold on, if, if this is true, if this is true, well, well, then that means I need to live with my eyes fixed here instead of here. I need to live for this instead of that. I, I need to live for God instead of me. And so our whole life begins to reshape uh, as a result of the discovery of the gospel. But, but what if it's not true? What if the gospel is not true? What if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Or what if it wasn't God who came and rescued us? What if what Paul is preaching to the people in Galatia in the book of Acts and now will continue to preach is actually a fabricated, man-made reality born out of men to, to, to help other men and women be controlled or to give them a, a, a sense of hope because humanity needs some hope, otherwise we just self-destruct. What if the gospel isn't real? See, do you, do you feel it in you? You kind of want to go, oh, you can't say that. You can't, I mean, if, if, if you start actually imagining for a second what if it's not real, uh, then it, it begins in us. We start having this sense, this feeling like, oh my gosh, if it's not real, if it's not real, well, that changes everything. Pa Paul, uh, the author of the book of Galatians, which we have just entered into, the, the, the man on journey in the book of Acts that we are following, uh, he felt this urgency of the necessity that the gospel be from God, that we are absolutely certain that the gospel is from God. He felt this urgency because he was the one that said, if it's not from God, we are in deep trouble. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's writing to the church in Corinth later on after the book of Galatians actually happens. And he writes in there in chapter 15 in verse 19, if our hope in Christ is only a hope for this life and not for the life to come, then we ought to be the most pitied among men. 
We ought to be the most pitied. Why? Because Paul recognized as he journeyed in his discovery of the gospel that once you discover the fullness of the gospel, you begin to reorient your life, uh, to to spend your life for the sake of eternity, for the sake of the kingdom of God. You start recognizing that every relationship and all its complexities, every resource, all your stuff, uh, every circumstance, all that you experience is not given to you to manage in such a way to make your life survivable or better. It's actually given to you as an opportunity to fulfill your God-created purpose to live out the gospel. And if the gospel isn't true, then we are doing it utterly wrong. So Paul writes and he says, if this isn't from God, then we are the most to be pitied. So what is the conclusion? We ought to take a good hard look and ask ourselves for real, how do you know that that video we just watched is actually from God? That that truth in that video, rather the video wasn't from God, it was edited in a room somewhere. But the truth that the video presents, how do we know this is from God? Now, uh, Paul is in the process of writing to the church in Galatia, right? Uh, We've just entered into the book of Galatians, not because we're stepping out of the book of Acts, but because we're sucking the book of Galatians into the book of Acts where it belongs. Uh, Paul is writing uh, to the churches in Galatia where he's just spent some time in the book of Acts because uh, he wants to show them something. This letter is a systematic process by which Paul is presenting to the churches in Galatia, guys, it matters that you get the gospel right and that you get the right gospel right because if you get it wrong, it's not the gospel. And it matters that you understand the deep implications of the gospel, that you understand uh, its foundations, that you, that you believe that it's from God and know that it's from God and that you know what it is and how it functions and that you orient your life, you reorder your life around the gospel because if it's true, then it, it begs us, it, it calls us, it invites us, it, it demands that we take our lives and conform our lives to what now we know to be true, an eternal reality rather than a temporal reality. So Paul is going to write to the church in Galatia to do this. Why is he writing this letter to the church in Galatia? Why does it matter that we step into this letter now while we're in the book of Acts? Well, because the context makes sense. Paul had uh, traveled up into Galatia with Barnabas, and Galatia was the first territory really on a missions journey in the book of Acts where Paul and Barnabas encountered a world where there was a significant presence of of Gentiles, non-Jews, and a significant presence of Jews functioning side by side. These are two worlds that are diabolically opposed to one another during the time of Jesus and before. And and Paul and Barnabas bring the gospel, the good news that our souls are rescued, our purpose restored, our future redeemed because of the work of Jesus who came, lived, died, and rose again for us. He's bringing that gospel to a world in Galatia, and he's bringing it to the Gentiles and to the Jews. And the gospel transcends both those worlds and calls them both into a beautiful world in Christ where we Jews and Gentiles alike can be unified in the freedom of the gospel. When Paul and Barnabas first arrive in Galatia, every time they present the gospel, it goes really well at first, right? Lots of smiles. Savior has come. It's awesome. They tell the Jews that the Savior has come. The Jews are excited. They go tell the Gentiles the Savior has come. The the Gentiles are excited, but then the Jews find out that they told the Gentiles that they can have Jesus without becoming Jewish first, and so the Jews get unexcited, right? And they go, hold! They can't have our Savior without becoming Jewish first, getting circumcised, living by the law, under the law, and having the sacrificial system. And frankly, if you're preaching a Savior that does not require them to become Jewish, he ain't our Savior. Then you're a blasphemer and you should die. 
So this is how it goes with Paul and Barnabas. Come in, preach to the Jews. Yay, Savior's come. I heard you told the Gentiles they can follow Jesus without becoming Jews. We did. Stone them. That's how it rolls. And the, and the Gentiles, they're hilarious because they got lots of gods, right? So Jesus comes along. He's a new one. He's awesome because I think he can heal us. And then when it doesn't play out for them real well or they find out that their Jewish guys don't like Paul and Barnabas, they're really quick to turn on Paul and Barnabas too. It's just another god. We just kind of float in and out, right? And so Paul and Barnabas experience in Galatia this incredible journey of walk in, goes kind of well, very badly. Uh, in in, uh, Iconi- uh, in um, Antioch of, of Poseidon, they get kicked out. In Iconium, they get kicked out. They go down to Derba and Lystra. They, they try to stone them there. In fact, in one of those towns, they actually accomplish that. They stone Paul, leave him for dead. It's not going well for Paul. Paul and Barnabas wrestle through that reality despite the persecution. And eventually after the council in Jerusalem coming back up, they convince the churches in Galatia, Galatia of the magnitude of the freedom of the gospel. They say, you do not need circumcision to live under the law and under the sacrificial system to know and follow Jesus. It's bigger than that now. You are marked by the spirit of God, not by circumcision. You, you are living by the law, not under it. And, and your life is a sacrifice to God instead of some animal. This is bigger, it's better. And the church is buy-in and they're like, yes, this is the gospel. And Paul goes, yes, this is the gospel. He leaves, some stuff happens and he travels up with Silas to go on another missionary journey and he gets word. He gets word that the people in Galatia, the churches in Galatia had some Judaizers come in and the Judaizers are telling the guys in Galatia, the gospel Paul preached is a wrong gospel. You can't believe it. You need to become Jewish first. And they have bought back into the old gospel that Paul had been battling. So Paul is ticked. I mean, he was the one that went through stonings in order to make sure they were convinced of the gospel. I think you'd be ticked too. I died to try to help you live this. Well, almost died. And now you're abandoning it like that. So Paul writes to them, and in the opening of the letter, he says this to them, it matters that you get the gospel right. It really matters, verse one through nine. It matters that you get the gospel right. You can't get this one wrong. And frankly, if anyone adds anything to the gospel, takes anything from the gospel, twists the gospel anyway, preaches any other gospel than the one I preach to you, they should be cursed. If an angel comes, he should be cursed. In fact, if I come back next week and preach a different gospel to you than I did last week, curse me. Because it is the gospel that matters and you gotta get it right. And now Paul is gonna progress in this letter and he is going to now uh, defend the next obvious question. If Paul's saying, the gospel I preach to you is the right one and the only right one and you gotta get it right, what's the next question you ought to ask? Well, how do we know that your gospel's the right one. How do we know your gospel isn't just a gospel from Paul? Maybe yours is Paul's gospel and this is, this is Bob's gospel and that's, that's Sarah's gospel. I mean, come on. There's lots of gospels and Paul's going, okay. So you asking me, how do you know that the gospel I brought to you isn't Paul's gospel, but it's a gospel from God? Well, let's take a look at that. So in the book of Galatians, Paul now defends that position. And he needs to because the rest of the book of Galatians is really drawing us into the depths of the gospel. And if we do not immediately recognize that the gospel is from God, not from man, then that's always going to cause us to wonder, am I even on the right track? So we got to establish, is the hope we have, is the gospel of Jesus Christ from God, or is it a fabrication of men uh, with different versions? So Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, page 631, if you're using one of our Bibles. If you're using one of your own Bibles, well, they put it on whatever page they felt like, so I don't know what it is. Just go to it. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. Hope you can find it. 
Um, so Galatians chapter 1, here's what it says, verse 10. Now verse 10 is the closing of the opening of this letter and the opening of this section. So it's the transition between these two parts that Paul's writing. And he, and he writes this, <clears throat> verse 10, for, I am, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So Paul says that because he's just called them in the first nine verses back into the real gospel, and he's just trying to say as a closer to that, guys, listen, I'm not calling you back into this so that I can somehow get you to follow me again. I'm not trying to please you, but he's also starting the argument for the next section where he's saying, look, if this gospel I'm about to defend is a gospel that I created, that I fabricated, that I've come up with, if it's some new version that I think is going to be awesome that's going to give me an advantage in my journey with you, I've got the wrong gospel. As a matter of fact, if I were trying to please men and I were trying to please myself, I would abandon Jesus right now. Why is Paul saying that? Because guys, Paul, especially to the churches in Galatia, can say this because they know what he went through for the gospel. He told them his story. He's about to say, you remember my story. Remember, Paul belonged to the, the hierarchy of the Jewish people. Uh, he was sort of the, the new guy on the scene that was progressing faster than anybody else. Uh, he had at his disposal in his career, in his Judaism, he had fame on its, on its way, fortune on its way, power on its way, prestige on its way, everything you could dream of having on planet Earth from a uh, planet Earth view. Paul had it. Paul was progressing beautifully. And if he simply squashed the movement of Jesus, if he killed the gospel movement, he would be the single most famous Jewish Pharisee that had ever lived. I mean, he killed the great rebellion of the gospel that was blasphemy against God. If he had accomplished that, man, that would have been awesome. And he says, I, I had all of that. I was chasing all of that. And then when I started following Jesus, let's just be clear how it went for me. I lost all my friends because the Jewish people don't like me anymore. I, I lost all of my opportunity for fame, fortune in the future, that, as far as Paul knows. I, I, I lost all of my resources. I'm now, I'm now just traveling into worlds unknown. And everywhere I go, here's, here's how it goes for me. I take this hostile message into hostile territory of Jews and Gentiles. I present it to get one smile and then a couple rocks thrown at me. Everywhere I go with this message, people are trying to kill me. So if you, if you think I'm doing this because somehow I think it's going to go well for me, not working, not working, I would abandon that. See, I'm carrying the gospel to you. I'm preaching the gospel to you. I'm, I'm calling you back into the gospel, not because it is of advantage to me, but because it is true and right, and I've discovered that. So now he's going to tell them, in essence, what he's trying, what he's trying to describe in the next section. Look at verse 11. So he's just begun the argument as he transitions out and then he says this, for I would have known, brothers, I, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So now Paul is making a statement. Here's what I want to show you guys as I write this letter to you. That the gospel I'm calling you back into that you have so quickly abandoned, the right gospel that matters that you get right, that is not a gospel I received from men. It is not a gospel that could even hypothetically be fabricated by men because when I received it, I received it directly from God. 
And now he's going to go about proving this statement. He's going to say, here's how I know that it came from God and how you can know that it came from God and didn't come from me. And he starts this way. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. Now, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. What is Paul saying here? Saying, guys, you remember my story, man. Let's just think back for a second. You, you remember how it went for me. I wasn't just uh, a guy in the Jewish system. I was the guy in the Jewish system. I was advancing in that system beyond others my own age, and I was so fervent and so, so zealous for what I believed about God at that time that I was willing to kill people who were against it, including Christians. And when I was killing them, understand that there was no convincing me. That's what Paul's saying here. I was so zealous for my forefathers that wherever I went, I was bent on violence and destruction of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying here is no man could convince me of anything because my zealous nature for what I already believed was so deeply embedded in me that no man would convince me. Remember, Paul was in Jerusalem during the time that all this stuff was unfolding with Jesus being crucified, rising from the dead. Paul was around when Peter and John were preaching the gospel in the streets and 3,000 came to know Jesus. Paul was around when Peter and John stood in front of the Sanhedrin and they said, stop preaching. And they said, well, should we please God or man? We're gonna keep preaching, take our lives now if you want. How do we know Paul was around? Was he in those meetings? I, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. He certainly had access to those, but whether he was in them or not, he certainly was in conversation about them because what were they grooming Paul to do? They were grooming Paul to go after Christianity and kill it, and Paul was there when Stephen preached his speech, so we know Paul was already strategizing and having conversations about Peter and John and the apostles and where they're gonna get them and what they're preaching about. So. Paul is hearing the gospel over and over again, and how convinced is he? Zero change, zero. Paul stood in the space when Stephen gave his gospel speech, and if you were Jewish like Paul was, and you knew the Old Testament like Paul did, of any speech that should have convinced you of the gospel, it should have been Stephen's speech. Have you heard that thing? Go podcast it, it's unbelievable. Stephen's speech was the perfect unpacking of the gospel in a Jewish context. And, and, and Paul stood right there listening to it. And when he was done, here's how it went. Give me your coat, stone the guy. So what Paul is saying is, you guys, you guys remember my story? There was no man that was gonna convince me of Jesus. If you think I came to know Jesus because I suddenly became intellectually convinced of the gospel, I stoned Stephen. And after Stephen, I was going to Damascus to kill a bunch of others. You know what it took to convert me? It didn't take a man. It took Jesus coming down from heaven, going, stop. What are you doing, Paul? Who are you, blind? Now you go sit in the house somewhere for three days and think about it. I'll send someone your way. It took that, and even then Paul was like, what's going on? And Paul's saying, look, when I received the gospel, I didn't even receive the gospel from men. Many do, and that's totally appropriate. That's how God designed it, but I didn't. See, God was already preparing Paul to make sure that Paul was gonna be somebody that could write to all of us, I did not get it from men because we have to be convinced that it's not from men, it's from God. And so Paul here says, I came to Jesus as a result of Jesus showing up on a road. Now Paul's gonna go on. Listen, my conversion itself, I was 
adamantly, violently against the gospel until Jesus showed up and told me, stop it. Then after Jesus showed up, let's take a look at what Paul did. But when he who had set me apart, this is verse 15, before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, there it is, Jesus showed himself to me directly in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were the apostles before me, but I, I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. See what Paul's saying? Listen now, watch what Paul's doing. Remember, he's building a case here that the gospel is not a man-made creation from men through Paul to them, but it is directly from God so that Paul is preaching the gospel God gave Paul to preach. So here's what he says. My conversion was in fact an act of God directly in my particular context. The life I'm now living is of disadvantage to me on planet earth, so seriously, I'm not living this for my advantage. And after conversion, I didn't go up into a discipleship small group. I didn't join a missional community. I didn't jump into the normal system. It's a good system to jump into, but I didn't because I, God knew I would need to be writing these letters. I went to Arabia, to the desert in the middle of nowhere for three years and hung out by myself with Jesus and the Bible. See, uh, Paul knew the scriptures incredibly well, and I can imagine during those three years, we know that he received some great revelation from God. He speaks at different times in his letters about how God revealed himself during those three years in incredible supernatural ways. I don't know what happened through those three years. I don't know how directly Paul was hanging out with Jesus. I suspect if Jesus showed up on the road to Damascus, he could have shown up multiple times in the three years. I do know that Paul would have wrestled with the scriptures because that's what Paul does well. I do know that Paul probably spent three years working his way through this gospel that he has now received and going, how can I know? Everything I've ever known is opposed to this. How can I know? And then discovering it was never opposed to it. It was a part of the story and seeing the gospel fold in. Those three years were critical for Paul. And Paul says, listen, the other apostles, who did they learn the gospel from? Well, they learned it from Jesus directly. He came to planet earth, flesh and blood, hung out with him for three years. Now Paul's saying, me? Who brought me to Jesus? Well, Jesus did. And who did I learn the, the, the implications of the gospel from? Well, I learned it from Jesus. We went and hung out for three years in the middle of nowhere before I went to Jerusalem and hung out with anybody else. So remember Paul's saying, I did not come to Christ because of men. I did not learn the gospel by men. I did not sit under discipleship of men up to this point. And then he says this. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, or Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And James, of course, the Lord's brother, uh, was uh, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And so he sees Peter and he sees James, two of the great men who were the sending agents in the beginning of the early church story in the book of Acts, right? Um, and this is what he says. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia preaching the gospel. So what do we see happens there? It's a fascinating little moment. And the guys in Galatia would have picked up immediately on what Paul's doing here. 
I came to Jesus as a result of Jesus. I spent time alone with him in the word, learning the, the gospel. Then I went to Jerusalem and hung out with who? Peter and James. And after hanging out with Peter and James for 15 or so days, I was sent out to uh, Cilicia and, and to uh, other areas of the world to go and preach the gospel. So what do we know happened in Jerusalem? When Paul came to hang out with them, what did they say when Paul spent some time with them? Hey guys, here's, I met Jesus on the road to Damascus. You heard about that already. I've been in Arabia and Damascus just kind of hanging out with him. Here's what he's shown me about the gospel. Here's what I now know. Here's what I understand. And, and Peter's going, huh, that's exactly what he taught us. Unbelievable. You've been hanging with Jesus. And James goes, yeah. And then James and Peter go, 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 go preach the gospel. He gets sent out from Jerusalem immediately with no hesitation on these guys' part going, don't go anywhere, don't share the stuff you've learned because it's crazy. So we see, we see Paul here uh, writing and saying, guys, I came to Jesus by Jesus. I, I, I learned the gospel by Jesus. And then when I went to the other guys who came to Jesus by Jesus and learned the gospel from Jesus and I compared notes, they went, hey, Jesus taught you the same gospel he taught us. Who knew? Side note, Jesus does not teach multiple people different gospels, okay? No matter what people tell you, that's not how God works. God is a God of clarity and he brings us revelation clearly. And if we take our time to look into it, the conclusions will be closer than you can imagine. And so Paul and Peter and James, they conclude that the gospel that they received from God is the same gospel. And then Paul writes and says this, then I went out to the regions of Syria and Cilicia and was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. See what Paul's saying here? He's saying, guys, when the churches who had not yet met me found out that I came to Jesus... What was their response? They glorified God. They were like, God, wow, that's unbelievable. Have you guys heard? Paul came to Jesus. I mean, how, how is that possible? You see, he's, he's making a point here saying, everybody knew that I was not gonna come to Jesus, but they hadn't even met me and they heard that I was now preaching the faith that I once tried to destroy and they glorified God because they're like, that is insane. I mean, Paul heard the speeches in Jerusalem. He heard Stephen's speech. He never came to Jesus. We were all hiding from him. And Jesus meets him on the street and says, stop it. And now he's following Jesus. He knows the gospel and he's preaching it. That's amazing. See, Paul is just constantly saying, guys, listen to my story. The gospel I brought to you is a gospel from God and it is of no benefit to me. So why would I bring it to you if I was trying to benefit myself? I'm bringing it to you because it's true, because Jesus came and told me directly and because he sent me to you. Paul is living a life where he has nothing to gain by living out the gospel. When he's writing to the church in Galatia, uh, all he really has is the trouble he ran into in Galatia. That's all he's got to present to them. But we will see Paul's life continue on in this particular journey. And we will see how Paul's life was a life where consistently carrying the gospel into the regions he was called to caused great trouble for Paul. 
In, in the book of 2 Corinthians, which is literally the page before Galatians chapter 1, Paul writes later on about his entire experience carrying the gospel. And he continues to demonstrate how this gospel he was carrying, he was not carrying because it was a good gospel to carry to people. And as far as it was benefiting him, he was carrying it because it was true and he knew it and he was convinced. Because anyone that went through what I'm about to read, what they're bringing to the table, they better be utterly convinced it's true, right? Listen to this. Here, here it goes. Paul writing in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in the middle of verse 23. Carrying this gospel, he says, with far greater labors than anyone, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death for that matter. Five times I realized, I mean, I, I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys I took, I was in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. I was in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure." And apart from other things that I will not mention here, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Huh? Are you exhausted? Like anyone that's just lived that life, I mean, they better be utterly convinced of the reason they're living that life. Nobody lives that life because it sounds neat. Nobody goes, yes, I just, I'm just a, I just love to be shipwrecked three times. I just love to be beaten. It's a hobby. No, nobody does that. People do that because they're utterly convinced of the reality that they are carrying into the world. And Paul says, I, I was utterly convinced of the call. Utterly convinced. Listen to this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I referred to it earlier. I, I, read, I, I mentioned that one verse. I want to read for you the context of why Paul is living the life he's living and how he takes so seriously this reality that if we are going to live our lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us first make sure that we are utterly certain that it is not a gospel created by men, but a gospel from God, the gospel from God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 14, it says this, and if Christ has not not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. He goes, look, if, if Jesus didn't come from the, from, back from the dead and this gospel we believe is not true, then frankly, we are blasphemers. We are saying God rose Jesus from the dead when he didn't rise Jesus from the dead. We are saying you should look to eternity because there's gonna be a resurrection from the dead because of Jesus when there's no resurrection from the dead and Jesus never came back from the dead. So our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain, and I'm a blasphemer now. I mean, that is some serious stuff. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we in trouble. Take a look at this. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, that is if our life is only this life and there is no future life, no eternity, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Which then means that those who have fallen asleep in Christ or died in Christ have perished. 
They're dead. If in Christ we have hope, uh, uh, if, if in Christ we have hope in this life only and not in the next, we are of all people most to be pitied. And then Paul writes these words, very next verse. But, but, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Why can Paul say that? Because I saw him on the road. I saw him in the desert. I hung out with the guy. He's back from the dead. See, Paul's saying, yes, if this gospel is not from God, then all of us are wasting our lives away for nothing. That's how dramatic it is. That's how big this is. If you are going to live your life reoriented around the gospel of Jesus Christ, then if you're gonna do that uh, by the gospel we have discovered in scripture, it is going to change your life. It is going to call you into a life of mission for the kingdom of God. You're gonna begin to live your life with eternity in view, God's kingdom in view, instead of your temporal life. You are gonna begin to shape the relationships that you have been given, the resources or stuff you have, the circumstances in which you find yourself, instead of shaping them and ordering them to direct back at you and build a life that you can survive in or thrive in, you are gonna begin to divert all of those energies and efforts into a life that will make the kingdom of God uh, expand and the glory of God increase. And if you're gonna do that, that is gonna change the way you live. You're gonna suddenly find yourself stepping into missional opportunities, giving away what you should be keeping and taking on what you should be giving away, right? I mean, I certainly found that in my life. I, I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. My wife, Brooke, believes the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have discovered its beauty and magnitude. We, we know it to be absolutely true. We're absolutely certain of it. And we have discovered the depth of that gospel, that our souls are rescued, praise God, but the implications of that is that our purpose is restored to live a life that glorifies him and expands his kingdom, giving away what we otherwise would keep and taking on what we otherwise would run away from. And we, we trust that our future is redeemed. And so because of that, that has shaped the way that we live. We live on mission now. But I'll, I'll tell you, if you want to sustain a life of mission, you better have a certainty that the gospel is from God and not fabricated. You better dig deep into that. You better dare to ask that question. And not just go, I don't want to ask the question just in case it's not. Don't live like that. Dig in, make sure. Because it's about to change everything. You cannot sustain a life of mission unless you are absolutely certain that the gospel is from God. I, I know this. As we have lived our life, I mean, we've gone through multiple different stages of life. Uh, when we planted this church 12 years ago, I mean, man, it sounded so romantic. <laughs> you need to travel, you plant a church, it's gonna be beautiful, people are gonna come. Gonna, yeah. It doesn't happen that way. First three years of this church plant on multiple occasions, I'm like, what have we done? Nobody's showing up, nobody's coming, nobody cares. Oh, why are we here? There was such opportunity else. I mean, you, you feel all these things. You're like, God, what have you done? This is horrible. I felt like Paul drifting out in the middle of the ocean, going, this is sharing the gospel? They're sharks, dude, seriously. <laughs> it, is, it is not an easy thing when you step into mission. And then little did we know when we stepped into that mission uh, where that would take us. Because then uh, God began to call us to start uh, putting things together where we could affect resources to go out. So we started businesses. I mean, we started Oxum Coffee, for example. Like, let's start a business that gives 100% of all its profits away so we can change the world. Have you ever tried to start a business? Holy moly, tell me next time before I started how hard it is, not after. God, seriously, can I have the, 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 you know, the, the, the small print? 
It's hard. It, it, takes, it takes energy and effort and resources. Resources. I'm like, I wasn't supposed to put all my stuff in it. It was supposed to create its own stuff to give away. Well, it starts first with your stuff. I didn't know that. And then, then God says, hey, I've got a story for you. I've, I've got these four amazing children that currently don't have uh, a home and parents to call their own. And, and they're actually your kids. You've got to go get them. And so we step into the adoption process. And, and, and it, man, it, it, we, for years, as we journeyed toward that, like, it's, it's so beautiful, called into this beautiful thing. And we had this, I think we had this idea. I mean, we, we knew it was going to be hard. Don't get me wrong. But we had this idea. If you, if you take one family from one cultural context and everything's all different and take another family and, and you just catapult them at each other as fast as you can, when they collide, they'll turn into one big, beautiful family. You've heard me say probably if you've been here a while, that, that's like believing that you'll take one tractor trailer and another tractor trailer and drive them at each other at 100 miles an hour. When they collide, you'll have a brand new big tractor trailer. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. We, we know that now. When they collide, you don't have a bigger tractor trailer. You have a mess, fire and death and blood. And it's the same when you collide two families. It's no different. So we're like, whoa. And I got to tell you, through the church planting, the, the business starting, the adopting, each step where this gospel that Brooke and I believe uh, compelled us into giving away what we should keep or taking on what we should run from. Every time the gospel compelled us and then we were in it and it was messy and crazy and mission of life was trying to kill us. I would be on some highway somewhere, Highway 27, Highway 50, the Turnpike 408. I mean, you name it. I've driven on every highway and shouted this at God. Multiple occasions over the years, I've shouted at God. I'm driving, this better be true, man. This better be true. I'm telling you, at the top of my voice. Because if this ain't true, I'm going to be ticked when I die. I'm coming for you. Because if the gospel isn't true, then, then the life we're living is a waste. It's, it's useless. And the hope we have for our future is useless. It's, it's futile. So this better be true. And then God's answer to me every time in a sequence of, of time after I shout it in the car. And, you know, deep down I know it's true. I'm kind of ticked that I even know it's true because I just want to feel like it's not true for a minute. But it's like right there, it's true. But then God answers me. And the, and the answer that God has given me time and time again is far bigger than the answer that Paul has given the church in Galatia because he had far less to work with, you understand? When Paul's writing to the church in Galatia, this letter, the book of Galatians, all he's got to prove to them that Christ is who he said he was and that the gospel Paul's preaching is the true gospel from God is that Paul uh, is struggling and that Paul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus and that Paul had received the gospel in three years with Jesus and that Paul is now preaching the gospel at great disadvantage and that people are glorified that Jesus would rescue Paul because that's impossible. That's what Paul had to offer. And it's a lot. He was like, look, uh, this, is, this is from God. But what I have to stare back into is so far beyond what Paul had to give the Galatians, you understand? Because since the story of the book of Galatia, so much has happened. So much has come together. They didn't have the New Testament then. It, it hadn't been put together yet. They didn't have all the letters from Peter and, and James. And, well, they had James by then, but it was still circulating. They didn't have all the other letters Paul wrote. They didn't have the book of Revelation. They, they, they didn't have the connection between the Old Testament prophecies and, and the gospel yet, except for a few guys saying there's a connection. 
They, they didn't have a history of a church that should have died under the weight of the Roman Empire, but overcame the Roman Empire by its sheer love and beauty of the gospel. They didn't have a fallen Roman Empire. They didn't have a Paul having his head chopped off by the leader of Rome because he preached the gospel to them and still saying to the Philippians when he wrote, pray that whether in life or death that I would not be ashamed of the gospel and then proved it. They didn't have Peter and all the other disciples who at points in their journey when their life was put in danger and they, they were said either, either die or quit it, that they died instead of quitting. Every one of the disciples, every one of the disciples died a martyr's death because of the gospel except for John who was boiled in oil and that didn't work so they, they exiled him to the island of Patmos where he sat the rest of his life out growing old and that's where God gave him the revelation that we know as the book of Revelation. All the other disciples were torn apart by wild horses, sawn in two by big saws, crucified. See, Paul, Paul lived a life where he had everything to gain. And when he started following Jesus, for 30 years of his life, he suffered like few we have ever read about. And died for the gospel and did it with such absolute joy and honor. Because he was utterly convinced that the gospel was indeed from God. Because he got it from God. Peter and the boys all dying horrid deaths because they were utterly convinced that the gospel was from God because they got it from God and we stand on their shoulders. We have them as part of our foundation to go, yes. When Peter was going to die, they were going to crucify him and Peter actually bothered to say, I am not worthy of being crucified like my Savior. Could you do me upside down? Peter was crucified upside down by request so that he would not die in the same way as Jesus because he didn't see himself worthy of that. Who does that? I'll tell you who. People that are utterly convinced that the message of the gospel is from God, not from men, because they received it from God. And we stand on their shoulders and the hundreds, then thousands, then tens of thousands, and today millions of people that over the, the two millennia that we've traveled through, the 2,000 years, have stood their ground when death was before them and said, deny Christ or die. They stood before wild animals. They stood before gladiators. They stood before fires. They stood before guns. They stood before swords. And today, even today in our world, there are some that stand and say, I am utterly convinced that this is from God, not from men, because I have watched what the gospel has done. We have the prophecies and the New Testament and their beautiful collision and all that's unfolded. Peter writes about this. Listen to this. When Peter writes later on in uh, 2 Peter <clears throat> chapter 1, this is what he writes <clears throat> in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For, we have, for, for when we received honor and glory, uh, for, for when he, I'm sorry, for when he, Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. You remember that, that was at the baptism. Also happened in the transfiguration on the holy mountain. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter goes, dude, when we brought the gospel to you, it wasn't by cleverly devised speeches and realities, discoveries we made. 
We were with Jesus. We saw him on the mountain. We heard the voice of God speak to him. This is from God. Now look what he says. He says this. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in the dark places until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. What's he saying? Guys, he's saying, when we brought you the gospel, we were eyewitnesses. And since that time that we brought you the gospel and we've watched it unfold, every prophetic reality that we knew in the Old Testament has been confirmed even more. So he's saying we're in a season where what we heard in the Old Testament is being confirmed in the New Testament by our eyewitness accounts, and that is going to write a story that for centuries and millennia will become the foundation on which others will build the faith that they know and realize that the gospel is from God. Peter says, listen, pay close attention to your past, your history, because in it is the story of the gospel and the gospel is from God. Peter writes in the first letter he wrote this about those prophets. Verse 10 of chapter one of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter one, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, he says, this gospel, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. He's saying the prophets didn't just take this lightly. They went to God and said, we know a Messiah is coming. When is he coming? Who's he gonna be? How's it gonna play out? Look at this. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, us, the readers of this passage. In the things that we now, uh, that, that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels Long to look. He's saying, look, what the prophet said has been confirmed to you by us preaching the good news. And as that continues to collide, the foundation that the gospel is from God just grows and grows and grows. And then look what Peter concludes with right here. Verse 13. Therefore, because this is true, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's what he says. Guys, since you know and have every reason to know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is from God, not from men, set your hope on it. Conform your life to it. Reorder everything by this gospel and live sober-minded, prepared for action to glorify the King of Kings and to expand the kingdom of heaven on earth. And then you too will begin to live your life in such a way that others who come after you would have greater foundation to build their faith on when they realize this gospel is not of man, it is of God. Because look at what it is doing in the lives of those around me that I know. As we leave this place, may you and I more than ever be utterly convinced that this great hope we have, our soul's rescue, our purpose restored, our future redeemed, that there is an eternity that is the big story that we live for now, that that is from God. And may you enter into those complex relationships that wait for you out there, or some might be right in here, or those resources, that stuff you have that you constantly try to manage to make sure that you can survive, thrive, or, or those circumstances that seem so unpredictable, 
May we enter into our life, our relationships, our stuff, our circumstances, and may we look at them differently than we ever have and say, these are not given to me for me, but they are given to me for the glory of God, to fulfill my created purpose, to know him and to make him known, and I will use them for that purpose and that purpose alone. If I'm in a relationship, it is so that I can make God known and I can know God better. Your spouse is there to make you holy, not happy, folks. Get with the program. If they're testing your patience, good, you're getting holier. I love that story. It's a good thing. And you are given to them to love them for the sake of the gospel, right? Your, your, your stuff's not given to you so you can survive. It's given to you so that you can expand the kingdom in whatever way God calls you. Your circumstances are there through which you live hard and easy so that you can obey Christ and know him more and make him more known. When you obey Christ, do not obey Christ for yourself. Obey Christ for him. When you come, don't come here for yourself. Come here for Christ. And when you leave, don't leave here for yourself. Leave here for God. Your life is his. It belongs to him. He rescued it. He bought it back. It's his. And you exist for him. This is what the gospel calls us to. So may you and I walk out of there into our life and ask the Spirit of God to show us how to give more of ourselves away by taking more mission on in whatever context he might call us into, in our homes, neighborhoods, workplaces, schools, or the world, so that we might become a people that 30, 40, 50, 100, 200 years from now might be part of the great foundation that others can stand on. The author of Hebrews puts it this way, Hebrews chapter 12, verse one. Therefore, since you are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, in other words, so many that have lived by faith before you, that were utterly convinced that the gospel was from God, may you now cast off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and may you run with perseverance the race marked out for you. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, so that you might live your life for him. This is our great invitation, our great call, our great honor. May we be utterly convinced that that is the only way to live life, living it for him. And may we become part of the great cloud of witnesses for the next generation. Let's pray. God, thanks for your amazing love for us, all that you affect for us, all that you have done for us, and all that you have now provided for our future. God, you are indeed our great hope. And as Paul said, if you were not risen, then our faith is futile, but you are risen indeed. And if the gospel was not true, our preaching would be futile, but the gospel is true indeed. And so we stand thoroughly excited to journey with Paul through the book of Galatians as he once again unpacks for us. If we're gonna dig into the gospel, then we better first be absolutely sure that we know that the gospel is from God. Thank you that you've made it so abundantly clear, not only through Galatians, but through so many other realities, both in and outside of scripture. And may we continue to plant our feet squarely on the certainty that your gospel, that our souls rescued, our purpose restored, our future redeemed, is indeed from you. And may we live in it, in our relationships, our stuff and our circumstances in a manner that demonstrates that we are utterly convinced of its truth. Make it so, we pray, Jesus. Amen.